This is Market Insights, the Market Pulse podcast by Oanda. I'm Johnny Hart, and you're listening to the Market Insights Market Pulse podcast. Let's join our guests for Wednesday. It's Oanda Senior Market Analyst in London, Craig Earlham, and Trader Nick in the United States. Good afternoon, guys. Good afternoon. Hey, Johnny. Let's talk first about the latest US data out. And we've had some ADP figures today, which show private job growth. And by the way, of course, this is ahead of Friday's non-farm payroll numbers, was modest in November. Wage gains have slowed. Nick, that number of 103,000 jobs, was that around expectations or slightly below? It was slightly below. We saw a forecast of 131,000 this time around in terms of ADP. The actual came out uh, 103, and we also saw a revision down on the previous go around. This also follows Jolt's numbers, which Jolt's earlier this week was another kind of slowing in the labor market side of things. So this is all, of course, ahead of the the big blockbuster event this week being NFP on Friday. Markets are definitely looking for labor statistics to continue to cool. And I think they're starting to see it. But I do want to add a preface. We talked about this last time around and probably the time around before that. There's a little bit of a warning with ADP. It's been wildly inaccurate this year at forecasting or foreshadowing what's going to come on the NFP number to follow. Now, that doesn't mean that it's completely useless, but just take it with a grain of salt. Uh, There's been plenty of times this year where the number comes out with ADP one way, NFP comes out very differently. That being said, that combined with a cool down in the Schultz numbers, of course, the job openings numbers from earlier this week on Tuesday, that also saw a revision lower in the previous go around. So both kind of showing a trend towards labor market cooling. Now, why does that matter to FX traders, commodities traders, indices traders? Why does that matter? Well, again, it's all about what the Fed wants to do. That's been the narrative the last few years. And if the Fed is seeing cooling labor statistics, that is likely to keep them far away from rate hikes. And now, as we've talked about in recent podcasts, seems like the narrative is shifting more and more towards when are those rate cuts coming. Just before we jumped on the podcast, we were talking about, you know, just general speculation, how soon or how far out are those rate cuts coming? And I think that that's a a resemblance of, of the broader market commentary on the next big question. These labor statistics give us a look at the Fed being okay with the current trajectories, but then now the question is, how soon are those rate cuts coming? Just to add to what Nick said as well, especially with the JOLTS data, I remember last month when the JOLTS data was released, we talked about the fact that it was the second consecutive month we'd seen a higher number. So while the overall trend of this year was down, if we'd have seen a third number in a row of that level, it would suggest that we've seen some stabilization and that cooling in the labor market that we've been seeing over some time has potentially plateaued. The fact that this has taken a leg down again is really effectively just continuing that other trend and suggests we're not necessarily seeing this bottom, but instead that trend is continuing lower. And that's really important from the Fed's perspective because I think every piece of labor market data at this point in time is going to play a role in what the Fed thinks and does and what tone we ultimately get. It's all a jigsaw piece ultimately. And we've seen evidence of cooling in all the other labor market figures. And we had some big ones to come in the week before that next Fed meeting. Got NFPs on Friday. As Nick has already alluded to, we've got inflation data on Tuesday. This jolts one is not as big as those two, but the fact that it points to a continuation of a downward trend rather than a stabilization, I do think is important. 
And I get the feeling that this NFP number on Friday is one of the most eagerly anticipated of the year. Of course, it's the last of the year. And as Nick was saying, we were talking off air as to when the first cut might take place. Some people say March. Yeah. And I think an oversimplification of what the Fed looks at is they look at their dual mandate, the inflation side of things and the jobs numbers. And um, if jobs continue to cool alongside slowing inflation, uh, I think it's fair to say that markets are going to look and, and kind of pull forward those rate cut ideas. The question, I guess, too, and this is maybe where Craig and I can go through this a little bit, is the market already pricing in rate cuts much sooner? I mean, if you take a look at the dollar index, the dollar index has really fallen off of its highs by a good bit. Time of recording, we're trading at 104, give or take. The S&P 500 is up quite a bit this last month and a half. You see gold rising, obviously off of anticipation of rate cuts as well. That's being a big factor there. The question is, that dollar trend to the downside, is it going to be heavily impacted by, let's say we do get a cooling job number on Friday. Is the market already expecting that to happen, Craig? What do you think in terms of finger on the pulse of how the current market is positioned? What do you think is the reaction if we do see cooling job statistics in line kind of with expectations on Friday? Yeah, it's really interesting, is it? So on the one hand, I'm thinking how much more carried away can the markets get? We're already seeing a March rate cut priced in and four rate cuts in total covering 1% next year. How much more ahead of the game can markets get compared to the narrative we've had from the Fed for the last month or so? Of course, as we mentioned in the podcast on Friday, we saw quite a shift in the in the tone uh, from Jerome Powell, but also some of his colleagues late last week too. So clearly there is a slightly changing viewpoint uh, at the central bank, but I'm not sure markets are going to be too keen to get more carried away again ahead of that Fed meeting because we need to get a, a sense of the tone. But as we're going to come on to with the Bank of Canada, what the Fed says may not really change what the markets think. And we've seen this before, but because the Fed has been so much more correct this year than what the markets have, you would think that they would have more credibility in what they say. Yet, again, as we're going to come on to the Bank of Canada, there, there is becoming an increasing misalignment between what the two narratives ultimately are between the central bank and the markets themselves. If we get a weaker jobs report, it certainly allows the Fed to adopt a less hawkish stance. Does that mean even with a weaker inflation report, the Fed is going to signal that rate cuts are on the agenda from the first quarter of next year? I'd be amazed, frankly. I think the best we can hope for is a very neutral statement from the Fed. Even saying a rate cut is as likely as a rate hike as the next move, I think would be very bold considering the change that that would represent from the previous meeting. So I think there's a wide array of options that the Fed has at its disposal. And I think weaker reports over the next seven days will certainly help to set that kind of narrative. But I do wonder whether the pivots that we've talked about so long now could be later and sharper than even we expected uh, when we've been talking about this over the course of the last year. Because as, as we're going to come on to say with the Bank of Canada, they've left themselves in a position where they may have to be the case. Yeah, and as you just mentioned with the Bank of Canada, we did get the rate statement today, which came out uh, unchanged, which was pretty in line with market expectations. I was watching it as it came out, hardly much of a move there across the board. You know, the question, I guess, on the FX side of things is that as we see, and we were talking again briefly before we jumped on the podcast about how 
you know, certain central banks were quicker to move in the rate hiking process while others were faster. Like the, the Fed, they didn't make the first move on rate hikes, but they made a rapid move in the rate hiking cycle. The question is like, when you get the Bank of Canada, they're holding rates steady, um, but it seems like dovish commentary is coming in across the board. Where do you see, I guess, in 2024, uh, do you see any central banks that stand out as the most dovish compared to less dovish? Um, and, and I guess that sets up big trends. We've talked about this uh, at length on the podcast, just the currency trade, the currency side of things, um, central banks that have uh, starkingly different commentary from the other collective central banks, that's typically where we see the biggest trends. Like for example, the last few months, we've seen a real strong rally on the euro, the dollar, I'm sorry, the euro against the dollar, the pound against the dollar, um, things of that nature. So I guess, Craig, what do you think about central bank, uh, the balancing scale? Is there anything that's that's, uh, more abstract between different central banks that you can think of? To be honest, I mean, I don't think we're going to see a massive difference between when they move. So it could come in a variety of different orders. The only one that stands out to be different than that is the Bank of England, which I do think will be later than many of the other major central banks, especially when we're talking about Europe and North America. Uh, I guess at this point in time, I think we could see the ECB move first. And the reason for that is we've got a weakening labor market. We've got uh, it's on the brink of recession uh, in the for- now. So it could already be in recession. Germany's on the brink of a double dip recession and could already be in a double dip recession. We've seen much weaker inflation numbers. And I feel like we're talking about a block which has basically been through various crises over the last 15 years and therefore has been lesser able to be. Uh, as resilient as the US economy. It's also been far more exposed to the war in Ukraine uh, because of the trade links and the the reliability on Russian energy. So therefore, it's been hampered more so, especially again, from a German perspective. Uh, And therefore, it's probably better positioned to start the rate cutting cycle than the other central banks. But I don't think the US and Canada will be far behind at all uh, because of the data that we've seen and the, the dramatic shift we've seen over the course of the last couple of months in particular. Behind that, I'd probably be looking at the Bank of England, even though they're alluding to nothing at this point in time. Uh, I don't think they'll be that far behind. I think we could be looking at the summer of next year. And I think maybe last but not least, you're then looking at maybe RBA, RBNZ, because we look at recently, and we've actually seen a rate hike from the RBA, and we heard from them this week suggesting that they may not be done. RBNZ, there's been kind of similar noises as well. But then they've historically had higher interest rates over the course of the last 15 years. They have been coming down, but for most of the last 15 years, their rates of interest have been higher than everywhere else. So maybe we're looking at economies here that are just better able to sustain higher interest rates without suffering too much damage yeah so that's where i kind of stand currently but i think it's changing all the time and as i say i think we're going to see the moves happen so quickly one after the other i don't think i'm sure that might that may will probably not be as it actually turns out but ultimately we are going to see rate cuts and we're going to see a number of them uh, next year and it was interesting from the bank of canada today because as i was alluding to earlier we did see Uh, some comments from them. But what was interesting is there was not really a mention of rate cuts. It was, we will raise rates again if needed. I mean, when you've got a market that's pricing in a rate cut in three months' time, to hear the central bank only talking about the potential for raising interest rates because the risks there are still risks to the upside, while at the same time talking about the fact that high interest rates have taken the toll on the economy and the economy has meant that we're seeing less demand and we have already seen significant progress on inflation. This seems like a central bank that's really caught in two minds between we're clearly seeing this trend that the markets are effectively banking on, which is why they're pricing in rate cuts, 
but we desperately don't want to change the narrative at this point. So we want to really retain this hawkish narrative to the last possible stage, but we can't ignore the fact that the reason why the markets are pricing in a rate cut in March is because we are seeing weakening demand, weakening economy, and lower levels of inflation. And and it made me think that I wonder whether next week we get a similar reaction from other central banks as well. We're expecting a less hawkish tone, but our central banks not just banking on a late pivot, but a very late and very sudden and very sharp pivot, even up to, say, a month before if they're going to cut in March is February going to be the first point at which we start to see that really sudden late pivot where they start even publicly considering interest rate cuts rather than the forecast quarter before, which is what I was starting to think we might actually get that. But like I said, the Bank Canada today has maybe made me have a little rethink about what the communication strategy is going to be. And uh, getting your uh, very long-term crystal ball out... Um, I'm just wondering, Craig and Nick, do markets have an idea as where the rate would actually go to in terms of the lowest it would go? We've talked about the optimal rate as to how high it goes. We're not going to return to the days of 1% or less base rates again, are we? So what would be the new normal in terms of a low rate? Would it be around 3 3.5%? So I don't think we are going to see a return to what we've seen before. I wouldn't say absolutely no chance, just simply because I still think we're going to learn soon what the actual toll on the economy high interest rates has taken. I've said for a long time, I'm amazed that the economy has been able to sustain levels of interest rates as high as it has because we've just come off close to 15 years of zero interest rates. So I'm amazed at the resilience that we've already seen. So I I mean, as part of me, that wouldn't be surprised to see the economy take a deeper turn towards the start of next year going into the second quarter, which forces central banks to cut further. Longer term, I wouldn't be surprised to see interest rates stabilise at a much higher rate than what we've seen over the course of the last 10 or 15 years, like you say, around that 3% level. Uh, and part of that, is, well, I think there's a, a number of reasons why. One, we've seen a massive change in the economy since the pandemic and how people work and where people work and all of these things. And I think that brings with it the potential for things like lower productivity, etc. And I think that therefore leads to uh, potential higher interest rates. Uh, I think we've also seen a massive shift in terms of deglobalization over the course of the last five plus years. And I think that could potentially have a similar inflationary impact as well on a more sustained basis. Uh, finally, I, I, I'm really interested in what impact something like AI is going to have in terms of the kind of global uh, working environment, what impact that has on things like productivity levels and therefore what that impact that then has on uh, uh, over the kind of medium term on interest rates because you would think over time it's not going to have an impact straight away in most business senses, but over the medium term, if we're talking five years and, on, and onwards, uh, then I think that could have a big impact on it, productivity and therefore mean that we see higher levels of interest rates on the basis of that. Uh, so that's my broader expectation, which will ultimately probably be wrong, uh, as we've seen from so many people in the last few years. But I think uh, for the next year, I uh, I wouldn't be surprised if we do go a little bit lower than that, just on the basis of the fact that I'd be, I'd be, I wouldn't be surprised if... Uh, economy if, if we see economies actually suffering a little bit more than many currently anticipate finally guys uh, the slide in the oil price continues and uh, today we've seen wti dip below 70 dollars a barrel nick what is behind this continuing fall in the oil price yeah, so today will be the fifth day in a row that we've seen uh, the the strong sell in oil that we've we've been seeing, and that's both U.S. and U.K. oil. We see a rapid drop, and I think it goes back to you know what we always talk about when we try and analyze 
oil on the podcast. It's a question of what is the supply picture and what is the demand picture? I mean, you look at the the demand picture, I think that's the, the easier one. We're seeing economic data continue to roll in slower than expected, slowing down, cooling down, you know, not necessarily recession signals everywhere, but rather just a normalizing of, of economic data from where they were, which was a lot of growth. And, and so we're seeing the demand side get a little bit put under pressure on that uh, side of things. And then when you look at the supply side, the supply side, I'll just notice that, of course, the U.S. output is hitting like a fresh high. We're producing a ton of oil. And when you talk about supply, obviously, the more supply that's in the market, the more negative impact on the prices. If there's if there's a shortage, clearly everyone is rushing to to pay more for what is available. Um, the other side of it too is is the uh, Middle Eastern conflict. That, that's kind of old news at this point, but it continues to be a. Um, you know, what was a little bit of a, a premium price on oil because of what could have escalated into more countries getting involved seems to be somewhat out of the picture. It looks pretty contained. Um, you also have some stuff going on with OPEC that I'm not incredibly familiar with, but it does seem like uh, supply uh, constraints are not necessarily a massive pending issue. I know from the US side of things, supply uh, production is increasing quite a bit. And so you dual that with the demand issues that I mentioned. I think that that has potential to to continue to 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 be a negative deterrent for the price of oil. Craig, is there something do you know anything about the the OPEC side of that picture? Of course, OPEC uh, major economies that that put out a massive amount of the the world's um, exported oil. Uh, do you have any read on what's going on there? Yeah, well, I think, I mean, as we touched on previously, I think the market was quite underwhelmed by the OPEC plus deal. Uh, not just the, the level, I mean, it amounted to around 2.1 million barrels, 2.2 million barrels a day, but it was the potential lack of compliance that comes with it. It wasn't in the official statement. I think it was Angola that came out shortly after and effectively said, we're not going to comply with it. Uh, made people question whether other countries are going to do something similar. So the deal itself just looks a little bit weak doesn't necessarily seem to fully address the potential demand side issues that we have going into next year. And that again, links to the global economy, but also more specifically, maybe the Chinese economy and what the demand side looks like there. And I think we've seen like five days of losses now in crude oil. And I think that's partly on the back of that OPEC plus deal, well, largely on the back of that OPEC plus deal. And now we've seen a break of that November low, and I think that really accelerated things today. We're already seeing oil prices trending lower this morning in Europe. Then the US trade data and the ADP data and the non-farm data, uh, payroll, the, the productivity and the unit labor cost data, all that came out uh, around 130, and it started to dip lower again. It seemed to break those lows and suddenly accelerate. And sometimes these technical moves can have a big impact on oil because one minute it's down 1.5%, the next minute it's down 3.5%. And honestly, there was no major driving force from what I could see behind behind these moves. We did get the inventory data this afternoon. And again, that looked uh, pretty decent. But at the same time, that kind of came after the moves that already materialized. I don't think we can really attribute that to it. I think it just suggests that markets are saying, you know what, we had a real tight oil market for a very long time. And that no longer looks the case going into 2024. Okay, guys, thank you very much for joining us today. We will speak to you again on Friday. Thanks a lot. Thanks, Johnny. Market Insights, the Market Pulse podcast by Oanda. 